0: Hello, friends. Welcome. I'm glad you could join me. My guest today is P.D. Mangan. He is a writer and commentator on health, fitness, and life extension. He's got a great story, too. Years ago, he suffered from chronic fatigue, and he overcame his disorder largely through his own efforts, and he started writing about his experience. Well, since then, he's written six books, and he's got a significant presence on Twitter. You can find him at Mangan150. I couldn't wait to get PD on because you can tell the man's done some extra reading and poured over lots of studies. He's a walking wealth of information, someone who thoroughly researches what he writes and speaks about. He's made a career out of keeping a sharp eye out for BS. I have a theory that if you just followed people on Twitter who have a verified history of recognizing BS and sharing that with the world, That could be someone you go to for truth, which is so valuable nowadays. Everybody's always asking, where's Walter Cronkite when you need him? Well, there are people out there who give you the truth. You're not going to find it on the networks and and newspapers, which are biased. But there are people online who are quite adept at identifying BS. You can read their blogs and scroll their tweets. You'll see in their, their tweet history, wow, they were right about that and this and that people are usually, they're not putting forth the effort to go back and delete their old tweets. So what happens is their feed becomes a treasure trove of truth bombs and predictions of things they thought would turn out a certain way. And sure enough, they did. But I'm not so naive to think everyone cares about the truth. There are many people in this world for whom truth is not a value. Some people seem allergic to the truth. My wife was getting her nails done in Houston, this was a few weeks ago, and she asked the guy what was his name, and he said, Bee, like Bumblebee. <laughs> she said, Oh, yeah, Bee, like Bumblebee, of course. I think of the truth like a bee. Sometimes it makes a landing on you and you don't even notice, but other times it comes with a sting. But if you went your entire life without getting stung, you wouldn't be as strong as you could be. You wouldn't even know how strong you could be if you'd never been stung. So you just accept that the truth might hurt a little bit and you learn to accept hard truths as part of the maturation process of living. Hopefully you get to that point, but that should come early. I happen to believe the truth will set you free, thereby improving your lot in life. It may not be comfortable to hear, but nobody ever said growth is comfortable. If it were, everybody would have growth mindset but they don't. You have to put in the consistent work. Like today's sponsor, 1% Athletics, where they believe the secret to success lies in each one of us. And it starts with your daily disciplines and habits. All too often, people will set a goal for themselves, get discouraged and give up. And the reason is they're focused on the result instead of the daily growth that comes with the process. There's no clarity around how to get the results they seek. So what can you do? Well, you first gain clarity of where you see yourself in the future, then you focus on getting 1% better every single day. Because once you get enough days of 1% gains, what happens is your growth begins to accelerate. Next thing you know, you're way ahead of where you even imagine you'd be. That's the power of 1%. And that's what 1% athletics is all about. Inspiring people, getting 1% better so that one day you'll live the life you ultimately desire. Be sure to follow at 1% underscore athletics on Instagram to see product releases and a small dose of motivation. Or you can visit them at their website, www.1percentathletics.com. They have some cool gear, and there you can be part of the hashtag Team 1% family. I was talking about seeking truth. It's no secret some people would rather swaddle themselves in a warm blanket of bullshit than deal with uncomfortable truths. Those who swaddle themselves in blankets are probably allergic to truth and bees. But finding those in the world who have a serious track record of calling out BS, that's the sort of cheat code that growth-minded truth seekers could use in their life. Think about it. Writers now maintain their own blogs and tweet anonymously So that they can maintain their job and and their livelihood because it's at risk in the cancel culture. So you've got CIA operatives or doctors who've been given the gag order by hospital administrators regarding COVID who are risking their jobs and their livelihoods if they were to show their face and share their opinions online. So they do it under a pseudonym. Anonymous accounts have become invaluable because they can share what's really going on without any fear of cancellation. (laughs) And it allows you and me to have a place where we can go to consistently get the truth. We don't have to switch back and forth from CNN to Fox News to Wall Street Journal to New York Times. What we're doing there is just getting both sides of the argument. You still have to do the work to come to your own conclusion after hearing both sides of the argument. Yeah, right. Most people are not doing that. I realize that. But I just want to remind you, there are people out there who cut through the fluff so you don't have to. If you seek them, you will find. And my guest today happens to be one of those people. He will shoot you straight. If you're somebody who prefers lies that make you feel good, then this might not be the episode for you. As far as it concerns health and fitness PD has done the work consistently and will tell you the truth. But hey, before you go, if you're one of those folks, I just want to tell you, wise up. We are at a serious inflection point in our country's history. I don't know if we're headed towards civil war or not, but we'd be wise to wise up quickly. It's okay. The truth will only sting for a bit. My man PD recognized early on how mainstream health authorities were screwing us over. Their ideas were wrong, for the most part. But thanks to PD and men like him, we have a much better idea of what we can do to be truly healthy and fit. His willingness to share all that he's learned has enriched my life personally, especially the parts about extending your lifespan and health span. The stuff that I've learned from him will stick with me for 30, 40, maybe 50, 60 years. We'll see. (laughs) There's wisdom I got from Nassim Taleb regarding my personal finances. He said, you never want to take financial advice from somebody who has to work for a living. Well, you wouldn't want to take health and fitness advice from someone in their 60s unless they look like P.D. Mangan. (laughs) So I ask a ton of questions. I start by asking him about research on how humans evolved, because I'm infinitely curious about early humans. He shares how hunter-gatherers lived thousands of years ago. We have a lot to learn from them in how they ate and how they worked, how much leisure time they had. And maybe what I found most interesting was how they slept or how much they slept. Because on a previous episode, you may remember, we talked about There's a book written by Matthew Walker called Why We Sleep. Matthew Walker is a neuroscientist and director of the Center for Human Sleep Science at Cal Berkeley. Well, PD disagrees strongly with many of Walker's conclusions on sleep. So that's something we discuss. Something else he talks about is how much things have changed just in the last, say, 120 years. So the turn of last century, like 19th, early 1900s, why didn't they suffer from the chronic diseases that we suffer from nowadays, like heart disease and cancer? We're going to talk about that. I share with PD which supplements I take, and I ask if there's anything that he would add or subtract if he were me. You may find that information helpful. I sure did. And we have a fantastic, fun questions at the end I give him some true or false questions, which I haven't done before. So I ask in the next 100 years, human lifespans will be no longer finite, true or false. I ask if he were the coach of a team that was competing for a $2 million prize and he had to get the folks on that team in shape, which according to him, ideally in shape or the ideal weight is half your waist size. So I ask, how would he go about getting his team to half of their, I'm sorry, your waist size should be less than half your height. How would you go about getting your team to less than half their height, each individual? I think you'll be surprised by his answer. So we talk a lot about diet versus exercise, intermittent fasting, CrossFit, we cover quite a bit. Before I bring him on, I wanna give a big thank you to my team for helping me with this interview. It wouldn't have happened without you. So Nick Connolly, Jackie, Paval, thank you all. I appreciate your hard work. Please enjoy my chat with Mr. P.D. Mangan. P.D., I have long admired your work, man. Welcome and thank you for being here.
1: Uh, thanks a lot, Brad. It's, it's great. Thanks for inviting me. Great to be here. I find the
0: research and writing you've done on early humans to be fascinating. What they ate, how much they slept or didn't sleep how much leisure time they had. I love all that stuff. Can you give me some insight into how hunter-gatherers lived and maybe talk about which aspects of their daily lives for health reasons we should probably be trying to incorporate into our daily living?
1: Well, to my mind, the paradigm of, let's call it the paleo paradigm, is a very powerful one for looking at health. Um, So hunter-gatherers are those people that, um, are, are living a very traditional, you might even say Stone Age, way of life. And as you can imagine, there aren't too many of them left in the world, but there are some. Um, and they have been studied a fair amount. So if you go back in time to more than about 10,000 years ago, everybody on Earth lived this way. That's why it's a powerful paradigm for health. So if you, if you look to see how human beings evolved and what conditions they lived, presumably, you know, to the extent that we know, they did not suffer from any of the same chronic diseases that we suffer from, then we can have a pretty good idea of how that affects our health and, and what went wrong with the modern world. The hunter-gatherers of today are... Fairly marginalized people. So, you know, in the old days that I was talking about, the old old days beyond ten thousand years ago, hunter gatherers had the whole earth to themselves. We because we were all hunter gatherers. Now the hunter gatherers that are left do not. They've been crowded out by moder- the modern world. They've been getting crowded out for quite some time since agriculture. People like the hunter-gatherers of Southern Africa, they're living on very marginalized land. It's very dry and dusty, sparse vegetation and so on. So the reason why I mentioned that is because Mm -hmm. when we're looking at hunter-gatherers of today, we can't necessarily say well, that's how human beings always live. You got to you got to make these distinctions. So, you know, what would it be like, for example, to be a hunter gatherer um, in the middle of Europe? There are none there today, so conditions would be a lot different. Different climate, presumably much more abundance in animals and vegetation and so on. So, how how do the hunter gatherers live, and and what's important about it? They obviously, all their food has to be either hunted or gathered. So hunted would be animal foods, gathered would be plant foods. They seem to prefer animal foods over plant foods. So in one study of uh, a number of different hunter-gatherer societies, they found that these hunter-gatherers would basically eat as much animal food as they could get and that In a nutshell, the only reason they were eating any any plant foods was because animal foods were relatively scarce. Uh, They couldn't get enough of them. Nevertheless, they found that the majority of these hunter gatherer societies were getting the majority of their food from animal foods. So mainly meat we'd be talking about there. In that way, they are free of chronic disease. They have no heart disease or cancer that we're aware of. They certainly are not obese. They are less active than you might think. One of the sort of retorts people come up with when when you discuss this idea is, well, they're, you know, of course, they're not obese because they're running around all day and and working hard and all this kind of stuff. But in fact, they have lots of leisure time. And they might put in four hours of fairly active hunting or labor of some kind, but they do have plenty of leisure time. So that's not it. There, there was one scientific study that found that hunter-gatherers expend no more energy overall than Western people do. And some of that may be due to the fact that when they're not being physically active, making a living... They actively seek out leisure they they sit around a lot they rest and they don't necessarily want to work hard either. so they do what they can uh, to fulfill their needs. They sleep less apparently than Westerners you know the the average hunter gatherer was sleeping six and a half hours a night. however, that was characterized by really good sleep. They just go to sleep and wake up six and a half hours later, unlike, unlike us in the West. Naps were rare. I think we can take some clues from them as to, you know, why, why they are healthy, why they're free from chronic disease, and why we're not.
0: Would they eat to the cubic capacity of their stomach?
1: Well, they certainly eat their fill. When, when they get a large kill, they will be eating it. Obviously, food cannot be preserved well in that sort of environment. No refrigerators, obviously. Um, There are there have been some hunter gatherer societies that figured out ways to preserve food, Mm -hmm. Uh, American Indians, for example, with pemmican. But on the whole, food spoils. So, you know, so they they eat it right away and they eat their fill. Um, and they may not go out again looking for more food unless they're hungry again, or until they are.
0: Many people cite the work of Matthew Walker for the reason that you should get X amount of sleep. Are you more a proponent of getting more like six to six and a half hours like hunter-gatherers did?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. <laughs> there, there's, there's a very... Uh, I, very good article on the web about the errors that are in Matthew Walker's book. And I would urge anyone interested in this to read it. Um, I have been interested in this topic for some time, the topic of sleep. So to, to give a quick answer to your question, no, I wouldn't necessarily recommend a certain amount of sleep for anyone. While sleep is obviously important, some people, some people seem to take it to this extreme, extreme that, you know, if you don't get eight hours of a night of sleep, you're going to fall over dead. It is just not that way. Uh, For example, there, there's an interesting study, the largest one that I'm aware of, and it is an epidemiological study. In other words, observational. So causation cannot be shown strictly correlation. Um, But they looked at a large number of people and looked at, how long they slept a night, and then what their mortality rate was. Um, and they found that the lowest mortality rate was around seven hours a night. Um, so that, that appeared, again, it's not causation, but that appeared to be the optimal amount of sleep in terms of association. And what was interesting about this study is that fairly large increases in mortality did not begin to appear with less sleep until it was under something like five hours a night. In other words, there were plenty of seemingly healthy people sleeping between, let's say, between five and seven hours a night. They got away with that. They were fine. Another interesting part of this study is that increases in mortality were seen less sleep than you might think. In other words people who got more than eight and a half hours of sleep a night had a significantly higher death rate. Now, again, not not uh, causation, it's only correlation. Some of these people may have been ill and that's why they slept longer uh, or depressed and that's why they slept longer. We don't know. The thing is, is that we don't appear to need as much sleep as people think and that um, You know, there's I think the takeaway lesson from that is that if you're not getting eight hours of sleep a night, there's not necessarily any reason to worry about it. Um, And certainly another important corollary to this, um, they found that sleeping pills are quite dangerous, that they're associated with a much higher mortality rate. And so the problem is, you know, people go to their doctors um, and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not sleeping eight hours a night. There's something wrong. I've I've got insomnia. And so they get prescribed a sleeping pill. Some people stay on those for a long term and that's not good. So it's, it's good to know. It's good to have some perspective on this whole sleep thing. This, By the way, this, this article that I was talking about that I would urge people to read if they're interested, it's called something like Why Matthew Walker's Book is Riddled with Errors. Um, this, this author uncovered a lot of them. And unfortunately, um, people are taking a lot of what he says at face value and very seriously. I've seen this myself with, uh, on Twitter, for example. Um, let's just say I'm skeptical.
0: It's like with anything. We should probably seek wise counsel than draw our own conclusions. You're going to get conflicting information on almost any topic. I remember the radio host, Michael Savage, saying a lot that lack of sleep never killed anybody. And I've never known anybody who's died from a lack of sleep. But Matthew Walker was very convincing on the Joe Rogan experience. And one of the things he advocated for was melatonin to be used only for jet lag. He said it was efficacious only for jet lag. And that sort of stuck with me. So I haven't used melatonin since I learned that from him. But again, you could get conflicting information elsewhere. But melatonin wouldn't necessarily fall under the same category as Ambien or one of these other sorts of medications
1: that's right It, it it wouldn't necessarily although some people do take high doses of melatonin i don't know obviously what matthew walker said on the joe rogan show but um if he said that i i would tend to agree with him i mean if you need melatonin to sleep i think the thing to ask yourself is why do i need melatonin to sleep i mean it is a natural hormone so um you know presumably if there are any dangers um, and, and there don't appear to be, they would be far less than for, a, you know, a sleeping pill. So no, it is it is not in the same category as, as sleeping pills. I think
0: a lot of people are struggling with sleep right now because one of the best ways to get good sleep is to have a productive day. And people are pretty sedentary right now in lockdown. And so it's messing with their sleep. So I, I think a, a good discussion on sleep and different perspectives on it is helpful. Another thing you've written about that I found interesting was turn of the century and not this most recent century, but 19th and 20th century. So around the year 1900, we're not talking about that long ago. People my age were talking about eight ancestors. It would be our grandparents' parents, basically. I'm 40 for those listening. What is it that you learned about how they lived versus how we live now? And what are the big scary changes that have occurred in just that short time span of 120 years.
1: Yes, this is, this is all very interesting because I think it really goes to the crux of the matter as to why we in the modern age in the modern West, you know, suffer from so many chronic diseases like heart disease and cancer in the late 19th century, there were, um, this was the advent of what is known as ultra-processed food. And ultra-processed food, it's a term of art because um, all food is processed in some way or another. And I mean, unless you're picking an apple off a tree and eating it, then virtually everything you eat has some kind of processing done to it. Ultra-processed food is the kind of food that comes in boxes and bags, and it's in the middle aisles of the supermarket and has colorful labels and brand names, Um, Americans eat a huge amount of them, um, 60 to 70% of their calories as ultra processed foods. So what is wrong with these ultra processed foods? Well, to go back to your question about the turn of the century. So in the late 19th century, mid to late 19th century, uh, white flour was developed on a mass scale. Obviously, with the Industrial Revolution, they, you know there's all kinds of machinery um, that came into being and they figured out how to make white flour. So people started consuming white flour. Another thing was vegetable oils, or as I usually refer to them, seed oils. So these are things like corn, soybean oil, safflower oil, canola oil. These are seed oils. So they're not made from vegetables, they're made from seeds. Never before, in human history except perhaps in small amounts did people consume seed oils because there's as you can imagine in in many of these things for example corn you wouldn't think you looking at a corn on the cob you wouldn't think there's a lot of oil in there and there isn't so they they require you know industrial type extraction to get that amount of you know get get enough oil from it so this machinery and these methods were developed to make seed oils or vegetable oils. Then a third element was sugar. So sugar has existed for longer than the late 19th century, it, for hundreds of years in the West. But what happened is it became significantly cheaper. You go back like to the time of, uh, let's say, Henry VIII, and he was using sugar, but he was the only one around that could afford it because it was so expensive. Get up to the late 19th century and it's a lot cheaper. People are eating pounds of, pounds of the stuff yearly. So you put all those together and you've got ultra processed foods and they are cheap ingredients and they are very profitable for food companies because the ingredients are so cheap. There's allegedly something like only five cents worth of actual grain in a box of cereal. that might retail for five or six dollars. What happened? So uh, roundabout up to, let's say, 1900, people were eating a much more traditional diet. And then they started eating a lot more white flour and sugar. Um, Around 1910, Crisco was introduced. So Crisco is a hydrogenated vegetable oil, and there was a successful advertising campaign about it to convince people to use it. And it was a lot cheaper than the animal fats and and it would preserve better and so on. So people started using that, and then they started using the seed oils too. They were advertised for the same reason as being less expensive and easier to preserve. Around around 1900, heart attacks were basically non-existent. The first recorded heart attack that we know of happened in the late 18th century. There were car, uh, cardiologists in the in the mid. 20th century, saying that when they trained, nobody told them about heart attacks because there weren't any. The cardiologists were doing different things, not not dealing with heart attacks. Any, he, anyway, the rate of heart attacks rose starting around 1910, and it rose, it doubled, it doubled again, it doubled again until you got to the peak at about 1965, um, when you you had an epidemic of heart attacks in the United States. You had, uh, we're talking about middle aged men clutching their chests and dropping over dead. This was all too common. People wanted to know what to do about it. I, uh, President Eisenhower in, in 1955 had a heart attack. And so this was front page news and everybody's wondering, wow, heart attack, You know what causes this and, and so on. I should mention one other thing possibly not so germane to this, this general idea that we're, we're getting on here, but in 1900, hardly anybody smoked cigarettes. So tobacco use was obviously pretty widespread, but people smoked cigars or chewed tobacco or whatever, but cigarettes were pretty uncommon. And machine manufacturing of cigarettes came into being and they became cheap and they became more widespread and fashionable uh, so that in ni- in 1900 the you know annual per capita consumption of cigarettes was you know something like 50 cigarettes a year whereas you get up to 1965 and it was something like 4000 cigarettes a year was the annual per capita consumption so that's the difference and cigarettes are obviously a driver of heart disease and lung cancer too they didn't find that out till later So that was another factor that was different. The thing is, now we're all very aware of the dangers of cigarette smoking, and um, anybody who's reasonably health conscious does not do it. However, we're not aware of these other things that I've been talking about. So that's a difference between 1900 and today. So now today, um, the average American consumes something like 120 pounds of sugar a year, a huge fraction of the calories we consume are ultra processed foods so we got the uh, uh, white flour seed oils are a very underrated element of ill health in, in my opinion that's just hardly known by anybody that is around 1900 we the population took this hit that eventually resulted in chronic disease now let me update the story totally to the present day we took another hit in the late 1970s so i was telling you about these heart attacks and everybody wanted to know what, what do we do how do we stop middle-aged men from dying dying of heart attacks and the solution they came up with was it's all cholesterol it's high cholesterol that's causing uh heart attacks how do you get high, high cholesterol well it's causing caused by eating a bunch of saturated fat And uh, meat and other animal foods are relatively high in saturated fat, so these were demonized. This this, uh, came to a head in the late 1970s when the U.S. government had a commission and uh, formalized the first dietary guidelines recommending a high-carbohydrate diet um, and low in saturated fat. This was the beginning of the obesity epidemic epidemic. Um, obesity rates were quite low in the United States up until that time. Um, Now it's a massive problem. Um, There are other factors, but the dietary guidelines they recommended certainly play into it. Um, So that's where we stand now.
0: It's interesting to hear you talk about sugar and how it's something that the wealthy used to use and now it's relatively a poor and middle class. That's who's consuming sugar nowadays. There are other things that have done the reverse where they were prevalent among the lower classes. And now they're prevalent above the, uh, among the upper classes like tattoos, like cigarettes. You know, when you travel to Romania, cigarettes are a status symbol because it displays that you have money to throw away. Basically it, it I find it so fascinating. People who you look at would never, you, you think if you lived in the States, you would not smoke. You're too pretty or you're too sophisticated or, my best friend's mom, when she was at the University of Texas in Austin in the 60s, joined a sorority and they taught them how to smoke. So that's how refined it was back
1: then. Obesity is another one. A hundred years ago or or more, maybe, if you were overweight, that means you could afford food and you didn't have to work too hard physically. And that's changed too. So, exactly you know, right. The, the upper classes are not generally... There's plenty of overweight among them, but generally they are not as overweight as uh, as uh, people with a lower income. I mean, you don't see too many, let's say, corporate CEOs of Fortune 500 companies that are obese. So true. So, yeah, it's just not that way.
0: Theodore Dalrymple is a British author who wrote a great book called Life at the Bottom, and he talks about all of these things that lower class people once did that the upper classes have now adopted. And it's interesting to hear you talk about obesity because you're right. We're fighting an imaginary enemy that is food insecurity because our poorest zip codes are the most obese. It's incredible, but it's not the only imaginary enemy we're fighting in America right now. In 1900, life expectancy was 48 years old. And from what I see in North America now, it's crept above 80 years old is is this only due to infant mortality rate dropping
1: it it is not due solely to infant mortality rate dropping but that is a big one for sure if a number of people die before the age of five let's say that's obviously going to skew the average life expectancy of a population so it might have been something like 47 like you were like you were saying so If you reached the age of maturity, if you if you reached, say, 16 to 18 years old, what were your chances of living a a long life? And certainly plenty of people, they they were good. The chances were good. You know, so plenty of people, once you got to adulthood, you had a good chance of living into your 70s. Into your 80s would have been considered pretty old for sure. There's also um, been some other developments. You know, med- medicine, the, the techniques of medicine has got have gotten a lot better. So, you know, what's what's happening now is that people life expectancy is actually at the moment not rising. It's even declining slightly. But you also see longer maximum lifespans. So you see a fair a number of people. I mean, now living into, into the 90s is nothing unusual at all. You see it all the time. It's even not that uncommon. You, you know, if, if somebody gets 100 years old, you no longer think, wow, you know, because you see this in the news or you know people or whatever. So um, that's fairly common. So um, we did have, yes, there was a large decline in infant mortality. There was also... Uh, the advent of antibiotics. So that happened in the 1940s. And um, so diseases that were killing people before no longer killed them. Tuberculosis, pneumonia, these things were fair, were important causes of death in 1900. And they became, they became less so uh, as time went on. Um, it's like, like I say, with the advent of advent of antibiotics with the lowering of infant mortality better sanitation is a huge one that 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 dynamic of better sanitation has been going on for for quite some time since let, let's call it 1800 um, and that has led to better life expectancy so and, and in fact things like better medical technology or vaccinations are a relatively unimportant reason why life expectancy has increased since 1900.
0: I was watching your YouTube channel, Rogue Health and Fitness, and I heard you talk about the establishment lying to us about saturated fat and the fact that we should, or not fact, but the idea that we should be eating a bunch of small meals. I used to tell people one of the reasons I kept lean, speaking of correlation, not causation, one of the reasons I kept lean was because I ate a bunch of small meals and I even had a term for it. I called it stoking the fire based on what we know now. Two questions. When you refer to the establishment, who are you referring to? And secondly, was good health information kept behind the nefarious institutional gates or is this just new science that has come out?
1: Uh, Okay. So yeah, good question. So who, who is the health, establishment. Um, By that term, I'm referring to um, academic medical experts. I'm referring to people in the government that deal with these sort of things. I'm referring to big pharmaceutical companies who have a huge influence over the way medicine is practiced and taught. And then the Going going down a step than the, the sort of the average doctor who you know was taught all this and and so on. So the the health establishment is all those people. Like I said, the pharmaceutical companies have have a a, a big influence on medical education and the way medicine is practiced, bigger than you might think. This is certainly not a conspiracy theory. Um, they're they're very much involved and they want to make sure that. They make money by selling their drugs. I mean, it's just that simple. Why wouldn't they? That is the health establishment. As for, as for saturated fat, um, the way I look at it is that way back when, well, not, not, not so long ago, but the 60s and 70s when it was decided that cholesterol was a problem and that saturated fat was a problem for health everybody got into line. There were prominent scientists at the time that objected to all this, that that were skeptical about it, and they had their careers ruined. John Yudkin is a, is a well-known one. He he was an advocate that sugar was the main problem for health as far as our diet went. And um, there were others that, that were just totally skeptical about the idea that cholesterol causes heart disease and it's, saturated fat, raised cholesterol. So it caused heart disease, but they were either ignored or slandered, but basically everybody else got on board. And this was broadcast far and wide. As i mentioned, the dietary guidelines came out and this has been going on now since, let's say, let's call it 1980. They were telling us to eat in a fundamentally different way from the way people have always eaten. If people are allowed to naturally choose their foods, they're not going to eat this way. Um, And so they were telling us to eat, to cut the fat of our diets. And of course, you have to increase carbs because you got to eat something. So if you're not eating fat, you're going to eat carbohydrates. Also, the food companies jumped in with all the low fat stuff. And, uh, you know, sugar is low fat. And so, you know, for a long time, even the health establishment didn't see anything much wrong with sugar. Um they've they've changed their tune a little bit on that now. But in any case, in my humble opinion, it's been a disaster. Um and now we've got still I and here's another thing. I hear I read and hear every day. My doctor wants me on a statin. They the doctors want every middle-aged man to be taking a statin. That's that's really not much of an exaggeration. Your cholesterol is too high. So All of this flows from the idea that saturated fat is bad and that cholesterol causes heart disease. So this has been going on, like I say, I know I'm repeating myself, but it's been going on for 40 years. Can they just turn around now and say, oops, we made a mistake? Most people don't do that. (laughs) No. (laughs) There, There are careers involved. There's a lot of money involved. There are, there are lies involved. There's health involved. It would be, if, if they did that, why would you ever believe anything that anyone like that ever said again?
0: And it could be litigation city.
1: Yeah, so that's not going to happen. People who have spent their careers saying this are not going to turn around and say, you know, no, we were wrong. And so they're still preaching the same message. I mean, you know, for me and people like me and, you know, people that I'm in contact with and people that I read and people who read what I write and say, you know, we're in this little group. We, we understand, you you know, what's going on. Most of us are eating low carbohydrate, real whole foods. We understand what kind of a disaster disaster the whole thing has been. But the vast majority of the population are not hearing that message. Um, they're hearing that a ketogenic diet will kill you. Um, they're, they're hearing that, you know, um, you got to take a statin to, to avoid a heart attack, that you've got to keep your cholesterol low, uh, that, or that, oh, I started eating low-carb and my LDL went up, so I stopped. Um, all this kind of thing. Meanwhile, in the last 10 years, there have been several meta-analyses. Uh, uh, so a meta-analysis is basically a study of studies. So a group of researchers will get together and say, let's look at saturated fat. Let's look at all the studies that have been done about saturated fat and mortality and see what they say, put it all together in one great, you know, examine it closely and put it all together in one great big result. Uh, there have been at least three of these meta-analyses that I'm aware of, and they've all found that saturated fat is not associated with heart disease. Meanwhile, they're overlooking what is, in my opinion, the most important cause of chronic disease, and that is insulin resistance.
0: Do you think that what the experts proclaimed when I was born had just become groupthink? And how fearful does that make you of other sorts of groupthink as it pertains to the CDC and WHO and COVID and climate change. There's a book written recently called Apocalypse Never, where one of these scientists is going the other way now. Like I said earlier, it's imperative for us to seek the wise counsel of a bunch of different experts and then draw our own conclusion. But in your situation, someone who's written six books, you're probably skeptical of, of everybody.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm skeptical of everybody. I I this whole thing the, the, um this the covid thing you know two major medical journals published uh articles about hydroxychloroquine treatment concluding that it was no good that it did not work um and these both of these, one was in the New England Journal of Medicine, one was in the Lancet. These are two of the most prestigious medical journals in the world. And it was found out that the data was falsified. They couldn't rely on anything. That, that it, it was, you know, if people were, were a little more aware of this, I mean, it, it's scandalous what happened. Um, so, why should I believe anything they say? The, the thing, um, the apocalypse never thing. It's, it's the same thing. I mean, you know, I, I'm extremely skeptical of that stuff. People are always trying to sell you a bill of goods. You know, there's a lot of other areas that, that I'm skeptical about, but certainly in the area of health and fitness and, and nutrition, um, I'm very skeptical. The, the, the health establishment... Is is not just gonna turn around and reverse themselves or say, well, they're they're not even gonna say, yeah, maybe there's a little truth to what you're saying. They're they're not even gonna do that. There's there's no backing down. They're gonna lose face massively if they did that. Their identity's too tied up in their opinion. Their identity and their livelihoods and yeah. uh, their their credibility as experts. Yeah. I know that you suffered
0: from chronic fatigue. Is that what prompted you to write the book, Dumping Iron?
1: No, not exactly. But um, I had chronic fatigue, and that's what inspired me to uh, get into writing about health and fitness. And one thing led to another, and eventually I did write Dumping Iron. So it's indirectly related. Mm.
0: I have a doctor friend, and tell me if you've heard a similar story, and I know it's contrary to your book. But he was having terrible headaches and he had tried everything and visited all his doctor friends. And finally, someone suggested that he get an iron injection and he did. And it's changed his life. Now, I get terrible headaches, too. And I've tried iron supplementation, not injection, but it left me constipated for a week. It didn't help me. I just want to get your thoughts. Had you ever heard a story that iron was a miracle worker for someone and then didn't help the next person?
1: Certainly, iron deficiency anemia is a real thing, and so iron is a required nutrient, but the the people most likely to suffer from iron deficiency anemia are um, women of childbearing age. So um, the the figures I've seen about the prevalence of iron deficiency anemia in the United States, uh, if I recall correctly, were somewhere around the order of 2% of the adult population. And iron deficiency can be a serious problem as well, especially in children. As children are, are growing up, they need a source of iron. And this has been a problem in children raised as vegans. Um, and it can lead to long-term developmental disabilities if they don't get enough iron when at the time when they're developing and they require it. So, yeah, iron deficiency is real. I, I don't deny that. We 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 you know, human beings and basically virtually all living things do require iron. Uh, As far as far as, you know, someone like you were talking about, let's say an adult man, an adult man can have iron deficiency as well. Um, Usually, I mean, if, if, if an adult man went to a doctor um, complaining, you know, having various symptoms, fatigue would be a prominent one. And, and, and it was found that they, that, that this person was iron deficient. What they want to do is find out why, um, because bleeding is, is a source, uh, you know, undetected bleeding, occult bleeding, they call it is a source of iron deficiency and, and cancer can be a, a source of occult bleeding. So you know that's one of the things they want to find would want to find out why. So, yeah, iron deficiency is real, um, but but in adult men, pretty uncommon. And this um,
0: bleeding is that the reason women have less iron than men.
1: That's correct.
0: Okay, and can you talk about iron levels
1: around the world? In the Western world, we seem to have higher iron levels. So iron accumulates in our bodies. We have. Uh, You know, we have a regulated mechanism for um, how much we absorb from our diets, but we have no regulated way of getting rid of it. And with metabolic dysfunction and and various other problems, iron can accumulate in our bodies. Middle-aged men might have four to five times the amount of iron in their bodies as a middle-aged woman, and they have higher rates of disease as well. Um, when women go through menopause and afterwards they gradually but very slowly catch up to men in terms of the iron levels in their bodies. Um and so we can accumulate iron in in our bodies uh over a lifetime. Um there are other things going on too. For example, in the United States, um all Corn and flour, corn meal and flour, are fortified with iron by law. Um, so this this comes back to this, you know, two percent of the adult population who are iron deficient, the women of childbearing age. It was thought that well, if we do this, if we fortify the food, we'll get rid of iron deficiency. But they didn't think about the fact that everybody's consuming this iron uh, and and ingesting it added iron to food and iron in supplements or vitamins may be more readily absorbed by and bypass this regulatory mechanism that we have and may lead to more accumulation of iron. So there's um, a lot of interesting work about, about high iron leading to disease. Blood donors, for example, have lower rates of uh, many chronic diseases um, and, um, there have been there have been controlled trials of bloodletting, so you know blood donation and bloodletting are the surest ways of lowering the iron level because the blood is the biggest um, source, the biggest uh, storage depot. Let's put it that way of iron in our body. So there there are a lot of indications in experimental animals. High iron can shorten their lifespans, and low iron can lengthen them. So, you know, there's all kinds of indications of, of the importance of iron in chronic disease and long life, but not too many people are paying much attention to it.
0: I would agree. Is, is Best Supplements for Men your most recent book?
1: Yes. So I, it is my most recent one. And so since then, I've concentrated on writing, uh, you know, fitness and health programs that, that, I've, that are not in book form, uh, and, and, uh, putting them up on gum road. So, uh, there's their videos and text with these.
0: I want to share with you the supplements I take because I've shared the supplements I take on the podcast before, and I've had several listeners contact me and say they bought the same thing. And I want to put this disclaimer out. Please don't take health advice from my podcast host, <laughs> but I want to, I want to share with you what I take and get your thoughts. And then maybe you can tell me what you would take, what, what you would add or subtract if you were my age, and then give advice for supplementation for kids. So I take a B-complex. I take 4,000 IU of vitamin D. I take 500 milligrams of magnesium. And that's it. That's all I take.
1: Okay. So the uh, f- first thing that needs to be said is that if, if someone is eating a good diet of real whole foods, you know, hopefully supplementation um, would be not or only minimally necessary. Um, that said, not too many people do that. And there's also an issue of, of uh, you know, degradation of soil, so not enough minerals in the food we eat and that sort of thing. So that said, um, the first thing about your B-complex is that that would be one of the things that if you ate a diet of real whole foods that you probably wouldn't need extra, uh, of B complex. The second thing is, uh, vitamin D. So that's, yeah, I take vitamin D myself. Um, 5,000 I use when it's not summertime and I'm not getting sun, vitamin D deficiency and vitamin D insufficiency is widespread, So yeah, that's, that's pretty solid. Sunlight, it would be the preferred source of vitamin D because sunlight does other things besides give you vitamin D, like for example, increasing nitric oxide production, which is good for arterial health. But obviously, not everybody can do that. People live in the north, depending, you know, it might be winter, what, you know, all kinds of things going on. I mean, I've, for example, I find myself, like right now, it's, it's too hot out. <laughs> it's, you know, I don't want to go out in the sun really much. I go out in the morning. The other one you mentioned was magnesium. That's also a solid one. I take magnesium myself. Many, many people are deficient in magnesium. And uh, again, hopefully with a real whole foods diet, you would be getting plenty of magnesium. But that's something that I want to take, make sure I get certain conditions stress drinking alcohol drinking coffee can result in wasting of magnesium you you excrete more magnesium i do take vitamin d and magnesium myself what i would add for a middle-aged and up man vitamin k2 is a very interesting one so vitamin k2 is important for arterial health Uh, what vitamin k2 does you could look at it this way is it makes sure that calcium goes to your bones and not your arteries. The thing is, vitamin K2 is, you know, relatively difficult to get in your diet. One of the large sources of it is pastured dairy products. So for example, like Kerrygold butter would be a source of vitamin K2. There is some in other dairy products and there is some in meat too. I want to make sure that I'm getting enough so I take a vitamin K2 supplement. So that's another one. Anything else you would add? So I've recently been taking 500 milligrams of vitamin C a day. Um, again, this is something that I don't know. I'm, I'm actually kind of agnostic on it. But with COVID-19 going around, I, you know, it seemed a reasonable addition to what I wanted to do so that that's something i've been doing just recently i don't know if i'm going to keep doing it in perpetuity there is with with vitamin c there's an interesting an interesting downside that most people don't consider and it's been found that large amounts of vitamin c might block the beneficial effects of exercise so uh, there have been some studies that found that people who are taking one gram of vitamin C a day did not have show certain markers of, of being, uh, of getting benefit from exercise. They would put these people through, you know, whatever they did, six weeks of training or something like that, all the while taking a gram of vitamin C a day. It was also, there was also an amount of vitamin E in there. So that's important too, because We don't really know what was going on, you know, exactly, precisely. So they were taking both. But so large amounts of vitamin C might be able to do that, um, blocking some of the beneficial effects of exercise. When is the
0: first time you heard the words intermittent fasting?
1: Not sure recently, but, you know, let's say 10 years ago, I heard about it uh, and it was a pretty wild concept. I got to admit the idea that you would deliberately not eat. I learned more about it and I tried it. And it's a pretty solid part of my routine now. I usually fast 16 hours daily. So sleep is, for those who don't know about it, sleep time counts. So if you don't eat after your evening meal and then don't eat until late the next morning or noon or something like that, you've done an intermittent fast of a fairly good length. Um, So that's what I do. It's a very healthy practice.
0: I'm reminded of Chris Rock's bit on Robitussin. I don't know if you remember this uh, live performance that Chris Rock gave probably 20 years ago, but he talks about Robitussin being the cure-all. And when you're little and you run out, your mom will fill it with water, shake it up, and then you got more tussin, is what he would say. I think of intermittent fasting as sort of the Robitussin for dietary issues, sort of the cure-all, where everybody's going to it. So have you eaten today at all or not yet?
1: Uh, yes, I, I have eaten today. I, I did my resistance training this morning and uh, I did it fasted, but I always eat afterwards. So what did you yes, eat? Eaten. What did I eat? I ate uh, a cup of non-fat yogurt with a scoop of whey, at, a whey protein added to it. But I've also had lunch. I had meat for lunch. Nice.
0: And so, so when will uh, you go without food? What time today?
1: Uh, so, I'll have a regular you know, meal, let's say 6 p.m., and then um, probably won't have anything to eat after that until, let's say, 10 a.m. tomorrow, other than uh, you know, coffee or tea in the morning. So, that, that's 16 hours.
0: Are you sold on the health benefits of kombucha?
1: No, I'm not. Not denying that it's possible there could be some, but no, not sold on it.
0: Okay. You eating yogurt is what made me think about it.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think I, I don't necessarily do that for any kind of, uh, you know, lactobacillus or, or anything like that. However, uh, fermented dairy, which yogurt is just as is cheese, um, is healthier than milk. So I don't drink milk. Um, milk has lactose in it, which is a sugar and, um, so fermented dairy products are healthier. And so that, yeah, that's what I do. And it's, you know, pro- yogurt's a good source of protein. Nonfat yogurt is low in calories. I'm not a calorie counter, but, um, it is low in calories. So I like it for that reason. When I was coming up proper form
0: at the gym was very important. All of a sudden you had CrossFit breakout out all over the country and proper form no longer seemed important. Where do you stand on proper form at the gym? And I want to know if, if how often you should go to failure with your reps.
1: Proper form is extremely important. And um, from what I have seen, I've never performed CrossFit myself. I've just seen a few videos of it. But let's just say... I'm not impressed with their form, and I don't think that... So the, the way of looking at this is when you're doing any kind of training or any kind of exercise, what's the number one consideration you want to give to that training or exercise? What should be uppermost in your mind? The one thing that should be uppermost in your mind, the one thing you want to do is do not get injured. So you do not get injured by using... You use proper form to avoid getting injured. And CrossFit looks, you know, every, everything I've seen of CrossFit looks to me like an injury waiting to happen. Um, and so there, there, was, there was actually so CrossFit successfully sued somebody for claiming that they had a higher rate of injuries in CrossFit. So I'm not claiming that I know what the injury rate in CrossFit is. I, all I'm saying is I wouldn't do it. Proper form is extremely important. As far as conventional weight training, the big mistake that, if, I mean, if you go into a g- regular gym and you go in with all the bros working out in the, in, in the weight room and so on, the big mistake that people are making is lifting weights that are too heavy for them. And in other words, they're too heavy to maintain proper form. And then that's how people get injured doing weight training. If you have a weight that's too heavy for you to move in proper form, then you're using momentum or jerking weights around your, your muscles and tendons and joints get put into positions. They're not meant to be in with a lot of weight on them and you get injured. Here's another way of looking at it. The key in keep saying the key. I guess there's a lot of keys. One of the important things about res- uh, about resistance training, the purpose is not to move a weight or resistance from place to place. That's not the purpose at all. The purpose is to effectively load your muscles so that you can give them the stress and tension they need to get bigger and stronger. As far as going to failure, I recommend my, you know, my I recommend going to failure on every set and doing no more than one set of each exercise.
0: I find myself talking about what's important or what are the keys quite a bit too. And Howard Marks, the great investor, wrote a book called The Most Important Thing because he couldn't stop telling his clients the most important thing in investing is. So uh, we're all somewhat guilty of that. Is there a reason that you're more of a distance runner rather than a sprinter?
1: Well, so I, I no longer do any distance running. If you're asking me personally, I mean, I used to do a lot of it, but I totally switched. I believe that sprinting is a much better way to go about things. If somebody wanted to do that sprinting itself has, uh, you know, a relatively higher risk of injury than some other high intensity interval training exercises that you can do. I mean, if you're not prepared for it, you can't injure yourself sprinting, yeah. but with that proviso, sprinting is is, is better than distance running. Um, there's a dichotomy between some might say, me among them, that there's a false dichotomy between cardio training and resistance training that but they all they, it all lies on a continuum, so I don't think that with aerobic exercise, such as distance running, that, the, that this is like some sort of extra special form of exercise that does this extra special thing. So you have to do it. I mean, that's what people think, but uh, that they have to do cardio. But I, I, don't, I don't believe that.
0: I saw a tweet of yours recently that said, the elements of health are the basic sun, steak, and steel. By steel, you mean plates on a barbell, I assume. Right. Is that is right. that thought aimed at extending lifespan and health span? Or are those the most important things?
1: Yes. So, what what happens uh, as as we age is that we lose muscle. By the time someone is eighty years old, they can have lost half the half the muscle that they had when they were younger. And so if you don't do anything about it, you're losing it um, as you age. Why is that important? Well, it's certainly important in old age as far as one reason that older people lose their independence and end up institutionalized or something like that in a nursing home is because, you know, sometimes they literally can't get out of their chair because they don't have enough muscle to do it. Or many of the accidents people have when walking, like falling when they're walking, they don't have the muscle to support themselves properly or to recover if you trip to recover for, you know, from a trip. So it's important for old people, but why is it important for people who are younger? And the reason why is because the big correlate with aging is our metabolism. So as people, as people get older, they develop more insulin resistance, their blood sugar is less likely to be controllable, they gain body fat, they lose muscle. So this is meant, you know, the the steel part, the lifting weights is meant to counteract all of that.
0: I always ask at least one personal finance question. And so my question for you would be, typically people who are disciplined in terms of their diet and exercise, abide by the rule that is how you do anything is how you do everything so i'm curious if you're a disciplined saver and investor budgeter that sort of person
1: yes i am okay. um, yeah yeah i i consider myself to be pretty frugal and i have saved and invested all my life i don't know how successfully but i have done it and uh yeah. So I, I am disciplined that way. Part of my ancestry is Scottish and we're famous for that. Uh, <laughs> about, Scott free. Yes. Yeah, famous for frugality. So somehow my my mother, which is the Scottish side, says, I don't know where he got that because it wasn't for me. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely on the frugal side and the saving and investing side. Favorite thing to invest in? Well, right now, gold and Bitcoin. Oh, interesting. Do you see what they're doing today? No. Gold hit an all time high, and um, Bitcoin was up mm, $1,000 over the last day or two. So I know Pomp, the podcast that you were a guest on,
0: and Peter Schiff did a live interview yesterday. I wonder if they had some sort of impact
1: well who knows could very well be i suppose the american bitcoin market must be the drive you know the leading driver of of bitcoin as a whole i mean i don't know that for a fact but i'm guessing it would be and so there you have those two talking about it and maybe gold gold has been gold has been going up since early last year it, early last year it was something like 1300 And so now it's well over 1900. It's had a pretty much a blowout in the last couple of weeks. Bitcoin has been had its ups and downs, but all of a sudden yesterday and today it's going up quite a lot. So yeah, maybe it did have something to do with it podcast.
0: Do you want to do some fun
1: questions? Sure. Hopefully I won't say anything too embarrassing.
0: Where were you the first time you logged onto the internet and what did you do?
1: um i i was at a friend's house i i'm pretty sure and i was probably 42 years old uh so somebody asked me once um how long i've ever been without the internet and i answered 42 years <laughs> um, what did i do i remember looking at webcams in various parts of the world uh there i, uh, I distinctly remember somebody had set up a webcam in the antarctic And I was looking at this and I thought, isn't that amazing? I can look at what's going on in the Antarctic right now, a live shot. Very cool. What else I did? I don't know. I can't remember.
0: I logged into a chat room at a a friend's house. I was 14 years old and I thought it was so cool that you could chat with people. So this would have been 1993 or four. Which is more cancerous, sugar or feminism?
1: I'll, 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 I'll be diplomatic. It's sugar.
0: (laughs) True or false. Within the next hundred years, human lifespans will no longer be finite.
1: False. they will be a lot longer, but they will still be finite. True
0: or false. Flexing physically, not like on Instagram, the physical act of flexing is good for your muscles.
1: (laughs) Uh yes it appears to be it appears to be a, a lot of yeah yeah in a nutshell yes it is it is good um people people can a- have actually done some studies where people have gone through the motions of lifting weights only they're not using weights and they get Benefits. their muscles get bigger and stronger
0: If Elon Musk colonizes Mars will you consider going?
1: Nah no
0: I already know that your favorite book is Walden by Thoreau. So I'm going to deviate slightly from my what is your favorite book question and ask you if you had to take only the books written by one of these authors, who would you choose? Thomas Sowell, Matt Ridley or Nassim Taleb? Which author are you taking with you?
1: Probably Matt Ridley. Uh, because I've read several of his, and I've always found them to be very incisive and very thought-provoking. Um, so, yeah, I'd say Matt Ridley. i heard... just read one of his recently that was great. Which um, the one about innovation? How in, uh, I can't remember how it title. works. How innovation works, I believe. How innovation works? Exactly, very good book.
0: I've heard you say that a good gauge for your health is for your waist size to be half of your height. So if you are 72 inches tall, that is six feet. So ideally you would be 36 inches or less, I imagine, but not too much less. Is that a fair statement?
1: You know, there are obviously extremes, but 36 would be the, the maximum you would wanna be. So, you know, considerably less probably works too.
0: Let's say you're on a reality television show where you're in competition with other health coaches for a $2 million prize. Each coach is assigned two men and two women per team, and both are about 30 pounds overweight per the waist should be half your height rule. And I don't know if you need this information, but let's say they're in their 30s or 40s. What do you tell your team in the first meeting and what does week one look like
1: in other words so that they can so you can win the two million dollar prize right by 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 slimming them down the fastest yes okay what i would tell them is don't eat carbohydrates and start lifting weights
0: how many times per week in that week one are they lifting weights twice Oh, wow. Interesting. And is this an interval training session or heavy weights or go to failure?
1: This is a high intensity resistance training session, going to failure and coupled with a low carbohydrate diet of real whole foods. I'd also tell them to do some intermittent fasting. Yeah. Excellent.
0: Same prize money, but your team can only focus on exercise
1: or nutrition where do you put the focus? Nutrition, without a doubt. Exercise alone is quite ineffective for losing weight, for losing fat. Um, if you don't get your diet under control, odds are it ain't, exercise ain't going to make it happen.
0: I'm going to give you a few names, and I want you to tell me if this person is underrated or overrated. Mike Cernovich.
1: uh (laughs) he's interesting i don't i don't know i don't know if he's underrated or overrated joe rogan yeah well he's interesting too i i mean i personally well you're asking me for a one word answer here
0: (laughs) you can expound if you like these are intended to be a little difficult
1: okay okay so let me say that I really admire what Joe Rogan has done. I think it is amazing what he's done. He's single-handedly made himself really bigger than any network on television. I mean, if somebody would have told me that somebody was going to do that, I would have said, get out of here, come on. And he did it. So that is amazing. Um, He's also pretty unfiltered. I mean, he says what's on his mind and so i admire that as well that said i typically hardly ever watch those kind of things i mean i get my information from reading it's a lot faster i don't need to see people talking about it okay dave portnoy overrated or underrated uh uh, (sighs) i underrated i suppose i mean to the extent that i know about him his his is I've really only become aware of him in in the context of this day trading stuff he's been talking about recently. And you know what? He makes some really good points. I'm not saying I agree with his methods of trading or anything like that. In fact, it pretty much goes against everything I've ever been told, but he, he made some really good points when, when, you know, when he's talking about how it all works and the stonks go up and all this kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I found that all pretty interesting. He so interviewed under-
0: Trump a few days ago. I don't know if you had a chance to watch that yet. Fascinating interview.
1: I'll, I should look that up. I saw a photo of, of the two of them together, but that was all.
0: Tucker Max.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I'll have to say neutral because I'm aware of who he is, but you know, haven't read much of him or, you know, so. Tim Ferriss um boy i wonder if all these people are going to be listening to this podcast (laughs) (laughs) let's hope so (laughs) i like tim ferris of course i paid attention to him he's he's um in fact in in some ways he he's really has inspired me because i mean back when four hour work week came out i was like wow somebody really did this you know and and uh that was really awesome. That was inspiring. So, um, and I've read and his book for our body is quite good. Um, so let's just leave it at that. I, I, I like what he's done. Okay. One more
0: overrated, underrated, and then I'll ask you one last question. James clear overrated or
1: underrated. I think that people are looking for answers. They want people, they want, A lot of people want someone to tell them what to do or to give them advice. And and James Clear fulfills that function. I have found what I have read of James Clear, which admittedly is not that much, but I've read him online and so on. It's good. You know, whether he's rated in a certain way uh, by anyone, you know, whether under or over. I don't know.
0: This was the most insightful, overrated, underrated I've ever done, just to let you know. (laughs) Okay. You know, when I was nine or 10, I was watching one of my brother's baseball teammates putting his bat and glove into his bag. And I saw his arms were so vascular, the the veins were popping out. And from that point forward, I had a vision of what I wanted to look like. And so I worked very hard once I was old enough to lift weights to get that vascular look. And I've tried to maintain it. And so I just want to say, after looking at your pictures, you have now given me a vision of what I want to look like in my 60s. So if you're listening and you want to check out this man's work, please, PD, if you could tell them where to go. And I'm going to tell them also to Google image you so they can get a vision for what the future can be. How can they buy your
1: books and find your work online? Oh, okay. Th- thanks, Brad. So they, um, probably the best place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is Mangan 150. Uh, I'm pretty active there. I also have a website, uh, roguehealthandfitness.com. Um, and from there you could follow a link to my books, which are on Amazon. So that's where they could find me.
0: Excellent. PD, this was a blast, man. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks a
1: lot, Brad. It was my pleasure
0: friends, I'm always humbled by your listenership. I don't ever take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time here. If you enjoyed this episode with PD, please copy the link and send it to a friend. And if you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.